Hi, this is Ben Zorns with Ellerslie Mission Society. This message was given at the Church of Ellerslie in lovely Windsor, Colorado. This message is certain to convict, inspire, and invigorate your pursuit of the Lord Jesus Christ. We also want you to know that should you ever have any questions or comments regarding any of the ministries here at Ellerslie, we are always happy to provide answers. Simply contact us at www.ellerslie.com. We really would love to hear from you. Enjoy the message and may your faith and love in Jesus grow larger as you listen. Foodies. It depends how culturally smart and engaged you are to know if you recognize that term. And I have no interest in the term personally. However, I can't help but run smack into it everywhere I turn. There's this whole phenomenon uh, known as foodies. And everyone wants to be a foodie. It's one of the new politically correct terms for the in crowd. And if you are something special in this culture, then you would want to be a foodie. And so if you don't know what a foodie is, I'm going to give you a crash course understanding of it. And I'm not trying to mock the concept, but what I want to do is I want to address this notion Because our culture is being swayed very heavily. And when the Christians within the culture begin to buy into the cultural norms and begin to subtly, even unintentionally, buy into the political correctness of our age, in an attempt to make Christianity appear more attractive, we have a tendency to sell Christianity and the truth of Jesus Christ and the integrity of the gospel down the river. So, foodies... A foodie is a hipster in the food world. By the way, these are all definitions that I excavated. Okay, so these are foodies themselves, or sometimes people making fun of foodies, depends on which angle uh, I, I took it from. But these are the actual terminology given. This wouldn't be the official definition like in the dictionary, but this is my way of passing on to you what a foodie is. It's a hipster in the food world. Someone who lives to eat and disdains eating just to live. In other words, many people just you know, eat to survive. If you don't eat, you die. But a foodie's not like that. A foodie lives to eat. Their world revolves around food. Someone constantly in search of the next thing their mouth will love. Someone who thinks and talks about food a lot. Someone who has a refined and uncontrolled love of good food. A person devoted to refined, sensuous enjoyment, especially good food and drink. That was a very interesting one because as a Christian, as you're looking through this, you could just sort of chuckle and laugh and say, well, that's harmless. But what this is, and even a foodie would enunciate it this way, it's sensuality. It is allowing the sensual pleasures of the tongue to rule your life. A person who enjoys sensuality Isn't that an interesting description of a foodie? A politically correct term for an overweight person who is always eating or talking about eating. You don't call them overweight or fat anymore. You call them a foodie. The first sin of humanity. Do you know what the first sin of humanity had to do with food? Isn't that an interesting thought? We don't oftentimes associate it that way. But when you start dealing with food, you begin to get back to the very crux of the problem with humanity. How we deal with food actually matters. 
So the first sin of humanity involved the mishandling of food. Food is not bad. Some of you are very glad to hear that. From the very onset of this message, I would like to clarify that food is not bad. Money, by the way, is not bad. However, if food controls you, or money controls you, or sexual pleasure controls you, you are the class fool on planet Earth. So the first sin of humanity, Genesis 2. And out of the ground made the Lord God to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight, listen to this, and good for food. Isn't that interesting that God created food? He created these trees, these plants that would produce it. The tree of life also in the midst of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so I, you notice I have a dot, dot, dot here. I'm not trying to go into the entire book of, of Genesis to teach you something. I just want to focus on a key moment. And the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat. You know what? There's actually a freedom given to men and women to eat. Isn't that a fascinating thought? We are free to eat. So it's not a bad thing to eat. It's a very important clarification right at the beginning. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat of it. But there is a prohibition on eating wrongly. So you may freely eat. Freely means out of all the trees in the garden, you may eat but one. There is a form of eating that is improper. And thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. So I'm going to describe Adam and Eve as the original foodies. They chose to, they, they're choosing to make the eating of certain food more important than eternal life. And that's actually what I'm going to start with as a definition of a foodie. One who chooses to make the eating of certain food more important than eternal life. They're putting more value on temporal pleasure and food being ingested into the body than on the command of God and the life of God. In the eating of the wrong food, in the eating of the wrong way, they cut themselves off from eternal life. That doesn't sound like the brightest maneuver. And most of us from the outside looking in could say, well, that's not a wise thing to do. That's why it's called the fool. The foodie is the fool. They worship the belly instead of the God who created the belly. So here we are in Genesis 3, and this is the original foodies. Now the servant was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, You shall not eat of it, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die? For God does know that in the day you eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and you shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. And they died. And one of the things we've covered here at Ellerslie many times is there's two trees. We have a tree way back 6,000 years ago in the Garden of Eden. And then we have a tree 2,000 years ago at Calvary. And ironically, we are commanded to not eat from the first one. And the day in which you eat of it, you will surely die. And there's another tree. And unless you eat the fruit of that tree, known as Jesus Christ, you cannot live. 
You are supposed to eat, but what you eat defines your eternity. It defines everything in your life. How you handle appetite is very, very significant in the Christian life. The gourmandizer. Now, most of you, unless you hang out in the food world and maybe are a foodie, some of the terms I'm going to use are maybe not that familiar with you, to you. Gourmandizer is not a typical term that we throw around in normal America today. However, it's a classic word for describing the stomach or one who is all about their stomach. Or how about this? This is a good word that many of us as Christians at least know whether or not we understand what it means. It's the glutton. A gormandizer is a glutton, is one who, as it were, all belly. So usually when you think of a gormandizer, you think of someone who's rather large because they are all belly. And when they walk around, it jiggles. Okay? So that would be a gormandizer, someone who is all about food. And most of us go, tisk, tisk, tisk. How terrible is it to be a gormandizer? A gormandizer is a belly. Isn't that a very raw, straightforward way of saying it? One who is, in a sense, all belly. One known for their cravings for food and one controlled by their cravings for food. One whose God is their belly. One who devours food greedily and voraciously. One who snarfs their food. These are all different definitions for a gourmandizer. One who gorges on food. I mean, this is disgusting, isn't it? One whose food is all over their face and one whose passion for food is so great that it disturbs those around them. In other words, this person's fascination and fixation and the way they even eat disgusts people. That's a gourmandizer. And every one of us is shaking our head going, how horrid. That is terrible. In biblical terms, a glutton. And we're like, yes, and I'm glad none of us are like that. For many walk, of whom I have told you often, and now tell you even weeping, this is Paul speaking, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ. So the enemies of the cross of Christ, what is their behavior? Listen to this. Whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly. The enemies of the cross of Christ are gluttons. They're gormandizers. Isn't that a strange way of saying it? And whose glory is in their shame, who mind earthly things. Those that are the enemies of the cross mind the things of this earth, and they've forgotten the things of the heavenly realms. You see anything similar to this word in the last one? Gormandizer. Now we have another word called a gormand. Now this is usually a higher-brow word used by the Epicurean gourmets. A gourmand is classically understood as a gourmandizer with a little more refinement. In other words, instead of having the barbecue sauce dripping off their chin, they use a napkin, and they dab it away. However, their fixation is still on food. Now, this is where it reaches us. We live in America, and in America, our, one of our greatest sins, if it's not materialism, would be gluttony. We are gourmands. We're not necessarily gourmandizers. We're not the grotesque kind. We have a certain level of decency and pride. Come on. We have napkins. We have silverware. We are even trained in how to rightly hold them and cut our food. We don't just stick our face into the plate. Come on. We're gourmands. 
One who is highly interested in food and drink, one who believes that caretaking for the daily needs of the belly and satisfying the palate is the central and most significant part of life. One who thinks about the issues of food and drink to a degree beyond what would be considered normal. One endowed with a tendency to indulge in food and drink to excess. One who eats and drinks out of a drive for sensual pleasure and not just because it is necessary for life. These are the typical words we would use in our culture to describe this. The gourmet, or now a foodie. This is a very common term today. Now, after this message, if you haven't heard the word before, you'll hear it everywhere. A foodie. I have gotten so disturbed by the word that it turned into a message. There are certain things that just bother me. However, it is politically incorrect to be bothered by it. In other words, when everyone around you is fixated on food, I just spent two weeks down where it was a little warmer, down in Arizona, and everything is about food. Yet everyone is slim and fit and dressed nice, and yet everything is about food. It's about the sensual pleasure of eating. It was really strange. And so it drew this to the forefront of my mind. And what it also did is I'm not just looking at everything else and clucking my tongue. I'm also allowing God to say, start here, God. Because you can look at a gourmandizer, someone with the barbecue sauce dripping off their chin and not realize that you're a gourmand. You're the same thing, you're just more refined at your sinning. And if you're refined at your sinning, something's still wrong with you. And the wages of it is still the same. Though one will end up in hell with barbecue sauce dripping off their chin, both still end up in the same place. Both are still the enemies of the cross of Christ. This is actually a description uh, in this guy named Anu Garg who writes about words. So I was studying the etymology of all these words and I came across this guy, an etymologist. Both a gourmand and a gourmet enjoy good food, but a gourmand is one who eats to excess while a gourmet is considered a connoisseur of good food. This is exactly what we've done in Christianity. Well, I don't eat to excess. I am a connoisseur. And by sticking the word connoisseur over it, we suddenly excuse ourselves from all the ridiculous, disgusting behaviors associated with the negative side of it. The gourmandizer versus the gourmet, okay? One has it dripping off their chin, the other one is refined. The unrefined face stuffer versus the refined connoisseur of indulging without being grotesque about it. The food-smacking, food-snarfing fat guy versus the British-accented aficionado of fine and expensive delicacies. The glutton versus the foodie. The gross barbecue sauce-stained, burping, cheek-smudge sort of sinner versus the hip and socially refined sort of sinner. At the end of the day, both are sinners. One is just a more pleasant form of a sinner. Philippians 3. For many walk of whom I have told you often and now tell you even weeping that they are the enemies of the cross. Now this is the scripture from Paul that we read earlier. Whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly. Now look at the next line. One of the interesting things about being a foodie today, it is the bragging point. If you are a foodie, you are in. And ironically, in the church of Jesus Christ, this is just as much of an interesting phenomenon as it is outside the church of Jesus Christ. To be a foodie Christian is just as cool. Whose God is their belly and whose glory is in their shame. 
What are they bragging about? That which they should be ashamed of. Their glory is in their shame. Their God is their belly. Their end is destruction. They are the enemy of the cross of Christ. The foodie. A foodie is a gourmet or a person who has an ardent to refined interest in food and alcoholic beverages. So this is the official Wikipedia definition. I know I'm not a Wikipedia fan necessarily, but you know, where else are you going to go to get a definition for foodie? A foodie seeks new food experiences as a hobby rather than simply eating out, of conve- out for convenience or hunger. While gourmet and epicurean can be used as synonyms, they have fallen out of favor and bring to mind a stodgy or snobbish attitude. So here's this, this next little chunk was so interesting to me that I had to include it in my sermon. And I may end up thinking that it wasn't the best idea. But this is still in Wikipedia, and this is sort of the expanded version. Foodies are a distinct hobbyist group. Typical foodie interests and activities include the food industry, wineries and wine tasting, breweries and beer sampling, food science, following restaurant openings and closings, and occasionally reopenings, food distribution, food fads, health and nutrition, cooking classes, culinary tourism, and restaurant management. A foodie might develop a particular interest in a specific item, such as the best egg cream or burrito. Many publications have food columns that cater to foodies, and many of the websites carrying the name foodie have become popular amongst the foodies. Interest by foodies in the 1980s and 1990s gave rise to the Food Network and other specialized food programming. Popular films and television shows about foods, such as Top Chef and Iron Chef, a renaissance in specialized cookbooks, specialized periodicals such as Gourmet Magazine and Cooks Illustrated, sorry about that, growing popularity of farmers' markets, food-oriented websites like Zagat's and Yelp, publishing and reading food blogs like Food Beast and Foodie World, Food Beast? (laughs) And Foodie World specialized kitchenware stores like Williams-Sonoma and Sur La Table, and the institution, it's probably like Sur La Table, I'm guessing, and the institution of the celebrity chef. There is also a growing market for culinary tourism, which tours led by operators such as aspiring adventurers in Peru and zest food tours of New Zealand. This is a whole world out there. It has caused an entire fixation of a culture, and our culture, the culture we live in, sponsors this. We spend great deals of money That's why all these industries are starting up. You can always tell what is at the center because the entire economic system centers around it. The question for us as Christians is, are we promoting this? Are we behind this? Do we have a healthy relationship with food, which needs to be described as well? Or do we have an unhealthy fetish, an unhealthy fixation? Some people spend their entire day thinking about their next meal, and they invent their next meal in their mind. They begin salivating over their next meal, and their next meal is three hours away, and yet they are shopping for their next meal. They are anticipating it constantly. What I would like for you to begin to check is not to blame that on a personality type, but to begin to set your soul before the living God and say, what should my mind be fixed on? 
It's not that food and preparation of food, because for instance, someone could go to the store and be thinking about preparing a meal for their family and anticipating the creation of an environment for their family and building closeness as a family around food. There's nothing wrong with that. But food itself, for the sensual pleasure of it, is a problem. And it is the very problem that Adam and Eve had in the garden. And so when Christ comes, dies upon a cross and resurrects and ascends to the right hand of the Father, and he comes to us with the remedy for our problem, it's not to turn our eyes even more towards food. It's to turn our eyes more towards what saves us. We were created for something. We were given a digestive system for a reason. And it's not for sensual pleasure alone. It is for pleasing God. It is for glorifying God. There is some way of glorifying God when we eat and when we drink. That's what it says in Scripture. And so as a result, it's of the utmost importance right now for us as American Christians to understand this. The belly Christian. Typically in times past, it's been called the carnal Christian or the fleshly Christian. There's a lot of debates of if a carnal Christian can end up in heaven. Because how could you continue in your carnality or your fleshly behavior and still call yourself a Christian? Well, that's not the point of this message is to go into that argument, but it's to basically enunciate the fact that there is something today that we could call the belly Christian. That person is walking a very, very fine line. It is a very, very dangerous thing. It's like walking on a spider web over the pit of hell. You are, you are touching things that literally lead to destruction and disaster. When you serve your belly, and when you make your belly your primary focal point of life, you are in dangerous place with God Almighty. So the belly Christian, one whose belly rules the body, one whose appetite calls the shots, but one who has learned how to spin his defeat into something that sounds better than gormandizing gluttony. If it was gluttony, then it would be obvious that we're sinners. So you have to become a connoisseur. You have to make it sound better. I'm a connoisseur of food, he declares. It's just a hobby, she declares. I'm a foodie, they say. And a foodie is a hip thing to be these days. So the world stands by and applauds the Christian rather than persecutes him. Something has gone wrong, for when the belly still rules, Christ is not the Lord and Master. When the belly is still the God, then where exactly does Jesus Christ fit in? The Bible terms this the flesh and carnality. So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. Introducing the belly dude. In the message, The Body, I talk about the flesh. I talk about a character known as the old man. And I, I describe, I actually use this room as, as our body. And so th this technically would be the belly. You guys are sitting in the belly. I'm sort of where the heart is, so I'm safe up here. But back in the central uh, deciding area of the life, the, the control center, you have an office here. And there's a, there's a throne in there, or you could call it the director's chair. And who sits on that director's chair? Well, that director's chair was designed originally and built and created for God to sit in. He was intended to be the controller of your life. However, when Eve and then Adam 
ate of that fruit, they yielded up the center of their life, the control of their life, to a different master, to self. When Satan said, you can be his God, he was telling the truth. They could be in control of their life. However, when they took that position, they died. And they really aren't in control. You see, we, self, were never intended to control our life. And so when we usurp and take that position that is not ours, and we sit in that chair, something else controls us. And what is that something else? Well, one way of describing it could be our belly. However, our belly has a personality, as you've probably found out. When you desire to do good, your belly says, he even has a voice. It's like, no, we want to do this instead. Your belly controls you. He's dictatorial in his control, too. And that's what Romans 7 is even talking about. It's talking about life under the law, knowing what they're supposed to do, but they can't do it because they're being controlled by their appetite or their flesh. And so the flesh I describe is a six foot nine tall, six foot nine wide behemoth known as the old man. All he knows how to do is burp and scratch his belly. His shirt comes about halfway down his belly. The rest of it's a hairy, you know, mess. And it's and he just sort of scratches it all day long. And he burps and he has these little white donuts that he pops in his mouth. And he has white donut powder all over his grizzled chin. He's disgusting. And that's what wanders around inside of our body all day long. And the question is, are you serving the belly dude? Or are you serving Jesus Christ? You have to either serve flesh or spirit. And you must choose who your master will be. That's what the gospel is. The gospel is made a way for us to be set free from that chair. So that Jesus Christ can now sit on it and he can kick out the belly dude. So that he can now rule the belly. But in Christianity, we don't call it a belly. It's a womb. It's a womb. You know the belly and the womb are the same thing? And out of our belly, or out of our innermost, that's what the term is in Scripture, will flow rivers of living water. Instead, what's coming out? Everything disgusting, everything proud, everything lewd, everything lustful. That's what's coming out of many of our lives, and that needs to be changed. But it changes at the cross. We come to the cross, and we believe, and we turn to a master that is stronger than our belly. He sets us free from that chair. He takes control and he drives out the belly dude. So the belly dude, the six foot nine tall, six foot nine wide behemoth that burps and scratches inside the old man. The sin of self-entitlement. Self-entitlement, hey, I deserve this. Hey, I have a right to this. This is what gluttony comes from. Gluttony is, at its very root, the idea or the notion of self-entitlement. Hey, I have the food in front of me. I can eat it. I'm entitled to it, a.k.a. serving the belly dude. For those of you that don't know what a.k.a. means, it means also known as serving the belly dude. So what comes out of that? Something known as self-esteem, one of the most common attributes in our training programs for young kids today. If a kid is going to be well-adjusted and well-fit into society, he needs to have self-esteem. He needs to esteem himself. He needs to aggrandize himself. I am something special. I have a life. I'm in control of my life. This is your life. Take it and use it for something good. Self-esteem. Feel good about you. You know what that is actually not a healthy thing? 
I'm not saying that you should feel bad about you. I'm saying that's not the center of what makes life successful. Christ esteem is what actually solves the riddles of your life. Not self-esteem. Self-worth. Self-importance. These are so normal in America that you guys are actually uncomfortable with my list. Let me read it again. Self-esteem, self-worth, self-importance. Well, what's wrong with that? That's the belly dude. The belly dude is saying, you're something special. You stay in that seat. You don't need to give up your seat to Jesus Christ. What's wrong with you? You don't have sin. You just have problems that you're trying to work through. You see, when the gospel comes, it incriminates both you and the belly dude. And it says this whole operation is wrong. It is not supposed to be about you. Your belly is not supposed to rule. Something is wrong with this thing known as the body. And God says, but I have done that which needed to be done, was needed to be done to save you from your problem. So self-entitlement is also known as gluttony. Or we could say it this way, living belly first. Isn't this a disgusting message too? It's supposed to be, by the way. It lets sin be what it is, disgusting. So what's gluttony? Self-entitlement. It's self-pampering. It's adoring attention paid to self's tastes, needs, and wants. What do you want? What do you crave? What do you feel like? Well, we walk through the grocery store, and we have what? 200 different cereal choices? What do you want? I was in Australia, and I don't know if Australia has changed this, but I was in Australia, and they had like three cereals. Muesli was one of them. It was about as boring of a selection. And the whole nation was like, I was all over Australia. It was like muesli, and then they had a couple others. I was like, hey, I'm an American. If I'm going to come to your country and feel comfortable here, I need at least 20 options. Because it's adoring attention paid to self's taste, needs, and wants. Listen to this. It's turning down the bed sheets for the self-king of the body. You know what it means to turn down the bed sheets? That's what a good highbrow hotel will do. They'll come into your room, and they'll turn down your bed sheets for you, turn off the light, turn on the light next to your bed, maybe put a chocolate on your pillow, turn on some soft music, because it's all about you, the guest. And this is your hotel. This is your life. And so you go into your life, you turn down the bed sheets. What's going to give me a good evening? What's going to make me feel good tonight? You turn down your own bed sheets. For the self-king of the body, attentive service under the ring of every demanding bell from the self-master of the, the estate. Ding, ding, ding. Whatever your body says. Yeah, I'm really feeling like a big bowl of ice cream. By the way, I, I really like ice cream. I feel like a big bowl of ice cream. Ding, 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 ding. Well, then get a big bowl of ice cream. You're an American. You can afford it. Go get it. You see, we have easy access to any ring of the bell. So this message is meant to put a finger on that to say, is that the right way of handling your digestive system? Is that the way God intended us to live? The glutton. Actually, if you look at it, all the TH and E are all capitalized, so it looks like the glutton. It's a belly. It's a prodigal. You know what the prodigal did? He left the estate of his master and went and spent 
everything he had upon his every desire. He was a belly. That's all he was. He was a glutton. One who wastes their body on self-appetite. A gormandizer, a man who is, as it were, all stomach. Listen to this last definition I threw in there. One whose spiritual chin is grizzled and covered with donut powder. You see, you are actually taking on the very same behavioral attributes as the belly dude himself. You are actually behaving as the flesh would behave, and now externally you're even demonstrating it. Yes, I know you have more refinement than that, but if we could catch you in those one moments, we would find barbecue sauce dribbling down your chin as well. You see, the only reason you have refinement is for the outside world. But technically, inside your soul, there's no refinement. You are a gormandizer. You serve the belly. Uh-oh. Eric, the glutton. You see, I would love to call myself a foodie in the past because that would sound so much better. But I'm going to just be straightforward with you. I was never a connoisseur of good food. I just liked food. And you could give me food. Now, there were foods I didn't like, you know, the old green beans type of a thing. You know, my mom would stick liver and green beans. What was the other thing I didn't like? Spaghetti squash. Oh, if you're going to give me spaghetti, give me spaghetti, not squash after it. I don't want spaghetti squash, I just want spaghetti. And so there were certain things. I did have opinions on, like, pizza. I liked Canadian bacon pineapple pizza. I didn't like it when they stuck anchovies and things like that that ruined the whole pizza. So I had opinions, but I wasn't a classic foodie. I wasn't an aficionado of it. I wasn't one that had a high brow, you know, and a nose tipped upward about it. I was just, let's just call it straight, a glutton. But... I've always looked like this. And so you don't think of calling someone who looks like this that looks like they could be blown away with the next strong wind a glutton. Because isn't a glutton supposed to be large? No. You see, gluttony is an issue of the soul. It is an issue that starts in here. And some of us can hide our gluttony better than others. And the ones that actually show it externally actually have a certain blessing involved because they have a tendency to be more aware of it. Those of us that are always skinny, you know what we have? We have a whole bunch of well-meaning moms that want to fatten us up. So it only oftentimes feeds the issue, no pun intended. So the garbage pail dad. My dad was known. He had an entire reputation at college known as the garbage pail. And so at college in his day, you couldn't just go back and get more food. So what he would do is he would get his plate and he'd just pile his tray, just stack it with food. And then he would sit at the table and wait for everyone else to finish and he'd get all the food off of their plate. He'd ask for it. But he would get, and he was the garbage pail. Instead of throwing the food away, they'd give it to him. And so I had some big shoes to fill. My dad had an entire philosophy you have a half hour before your body starts feeling full. And so what you want to do is eat as much as you can in that first half hour. And I had to realize my dad was a football player and he's built like me. Okay, so he had to pack on the pounds. I was an athlete too. I had to pack on the pounds and looties are hard to fatten up. We have this metabolism. <laughs> so as a result, that first half hour is critical for a looty. We have to stuff it in there and quick. So I had to walk in the shadow of the legend. 
this is my daily uh, dinner at college. Seven plates of food, and then I would go to Zip's hamburger stand and get five cheeseburgers for five bucks. And guess what? I was still hungry. Oh. Well, that's not a glutton, is it? That's a foodie. That was a glutton. Now, I didn't look at it that way. I was trying to fatten myself up for sports. I was working out twice a day. I had a lot of needs physically. However, food was what I thought about. I can't wait to get to dinner. I can't wait to eat. I wanted food. Hiding the croissant. Some of you have heard this story. It's a terrible story. But uh, I was at uh, missionary school, and at missionary school, I was having a very difficult time because they gave you one helping. One. I went from college, line two, to missionary school. You want to know why I hid the croissant? And so they put like, say you have eight seats at the table, they'd have eight croissants. One little thin slice of ham and one thin slice of cheese and then a croissant holding it together. And there's eight of them sitting there. So I would arrive and sort of wait for everyone to sit down and choose my table wisely. Make sure there's some girls at the table so they're not going to eat all the extras. And I wanted to have as much food at that table as possible, maximize my eating possibilities. And so this, I would look for tables that were missing people. Because if there's eight chairs, they're going to have eight croissants. And so there was a table and it was missing some people, so I sat down at it. And I strategically decided that as the plate was coming around, I would take one croissant, stick it on my plate, the other on my lap. No one would ever know. His belly was his God. And then as the story goes, the terrible story, uh, the guy, there was one spot that no one had ever filled, and I was feeling pretty good. I was about to whip out my croissant. Because it was about 10, 12 minutes into the, into the lunch or the dinner, whatever it was. And, you know, I was basically in the safe territory in my mind. And right at that time, some guy comes around and says, oh. So he counts the people at our table. Oh, okay, okay. Sits down and goes, uh, where's the food? And everyone's like, I don't know. There was eight here. And everyone's looking around. He's like, well, someone has it. Looking around the table. And then reached down and I'm like, oh, here it is. How awkward. The pancakes. I would always get up in the morning for breakfast. I wasn't about to miss one meal because they were feeding me like a mouse. I needed to do whatever I could to get as much food as possible. And so I would get up for breakfast, and I remember it was pancake morning, which is the one morning that everyone decided to get up for breakfast, because all the other mornings were like cereal. And so everyone shows up, and I'm at the, like, right at the front, first table, because what they would do is they'd make pancakes, come out with a plate, and then serve a table, go back in, make pancakes, serve at the next table. It would take forever for them to get around. So finally they get to our table, and I had a guy sitting across from me named Randy, I don't know if I was second in or first in on the side, but I was right there poised for my pancakes. And this guy took every pancake on the plate that came to our table. He just came in. <laughs> so all of us are like, excuse me, but we're at a Christian missionary school. So I was just like, all right, all right, I'm not going to get upset about this. God bless Randy. I tell you what, it was one of the greatest tests. And guess what? They served our pancakes again after going around through the whole room. Stick them on our table. What does Randy do? The whole thing on his plate. 
I think I ended up with one pancake that morning after waiting about an hour. Guess whose belly was his God? All I was thinking about is what Randy did. I had no graciousness, no understanding. I had a belly to feed. So I remember reading the scripture that their belly was their God and feeling very convicted about it while I was in missionary school. So I began fasting. I began saying, I need to solve this problem. I have a problem with gluttony. However, have you ever tried to solve a sin problem without the power of God? Well, guess what Eric did in trying to solve his sin problem without the power of God? I lost 25 pounds and was absolutely miserable. You see, I couldn't, I made it a, a sort of a rule that unless God gave me the privilege to eat, I wouldn't eat. You see, God already gave us the privilege to eat. But what I was trying to do is self-discipline myself out of having my belly be my God. The whole while, every time I would fast, what was I thinking about the entire while? Food. You see, I wasn't solving the problem. My belly was still my God. Have any of you ever heard my story of fasting for a week? I was fasting for a week. It was this huge endeavor for me. And I was trying not to tell people about it, you know, blow my horn, blow my trumpet about it. But, I mean, it was a big spiritual step. And I was fasting for a week. And the whole week, I couldn't pray at all. I could not focus on God. I could not study my Bible. You know what I was thinking about the entire week? Food! And you know what I was doing, I think, from, week, from day three all the way through day seven? Studying cookbooks. That's what I was doing. Not studying the Bible. I was studying cookbooks for how I could make some type of soup. Because supposedly after seven days, you need to eat a soup. You can't eat like a steak, which is what I really wanted. You need to eat a soup and sort of transition out. And so at midnight of the night when my fast would end, at 12 o'clock, I, I decided that 12 o'clock was the start of the next day. And so at 12 o'clock, I already had a huge pot of tomato bisque. I mean, it was huge. Already ready, just sort of heated up, and it was at the perfect temperature, scooped it in, and started eating. I must have eaten, you know, seven to ten bowls of the stuff. I did hear of another guy who broke his 40-day fast with an entire blueberry pie. So I do not feel that bad about my seven bowls of tomato bisque. I do feel bad, don't worry. In the process of solving it, I never solved anything. I was more miserable than I'd ever been. You cannot solve your belly with your own power. You must have the power of the cross. So this is serious business. Does gluttony matter? Is it just a personal taste, sort of like it's disgusting to certain people, or does it matter? Deuteronomy 21, if a man have a stubborn and rebellious son, which will not obey the voice of the father or the voice of his mother, and that when they have chastened him will not hearken unto them, then shall his father and his mother lay hold on him and bring him out unto the elders of this city and unto the gate of his place. So we're talking about a stubborn and rebellious son, which most of you could say, okay, what does this have to do with gluttony? Well, look at how they define this stubborn and rebellious son. And they shall say unto the elders of the city, this our son is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey our voice. He is a glutton and a drunkard. And all the men of his city shall stone him with stones that he die. So shalt thou put evil away from among you, and all Israel shall hear and fear. According to the law of God, this is deserving of death. You know, there's certain crimes in the Hebrew culture that when you're caught doing it, you just repay back. 
There's still some penalty, but it's, it's a lesser penalty. You know that gluttony, having the belly as your God, is deserving of death? Doesn't that sound a little extreme to us Americans? It's like, excuse me? That isn't how it works here in America, but that is how it works in the Bible. Now, do you remember when the prodigal went out and served his belly? Do you remember what the father was doing the entire time? Staring longingly, as I like to say, fogging up the windows, looking for his son to return. You see, gluttony is not the unforgivable sin, but we must understand the gravity of it. We cannot just continue in the pig slop because we are not home with the father. Being home with the father means leaving the pig slop. We must transition. It's called repentance. We must turn from that wickedness and come unto the father. Ironically, the father kills the fatted calf. It's not that God is against eating. It's that he must be the head. Hear thou, my son, and be wise, and guide thine heart in the way. Be not among wine-bibbers, people that drink too much, among riotous eaters of flesh, gormandizers. For the drunkard and the glutton shall come to poverty, and drowsiness shall clothe a man with rags. Self-entitlement. Turning down our own bedsheets. Listen to this. Instead of another's. See, I'm giving you a hint at how the body and the belly is supposed to work. You see, you have been built by God to serve others, to turn outward. And yet, what serving the belly does is it keeps your eyes focused on you, on your appetite. And that is the sin. The sin is self-worship. The sin is self-satisfaction, as opposed to giving towards others. The roots of the damning disease of self-entitlement, it's mine. It's my throne. It's my body. It's my time. It's my money. It's my life. It's my future. This mentality, which is very American, by the way, is the very basis of what we could call gluttony. It's the very basis of what we could also call sin. It leads to death and damnation. Understanding the basics of real Christianity. You see, whereas gluttony is self-entitlement, Christianity is self-relinquishment, which means it's all his. It's a different way of thinking. You see, when you are treating your body as if it's yours, then whatever it asks for, whenever it rings its bell, hey, I would like this, you serve it hand and foot. But what you do as a Christian is you turn unto God and you say, what do you want? Because this body belongs to you. It doesn't matter what you crave. It matters what he craves. What does he desire? That's what you do. It's his throne. It's his body. It's his time. It's his money. It's his life. It's his future. So here's our Greek word, paristemi, to present and yield under the rightful owner and rightful possessor. This word is used through Romans 6 all the way through Romans 12. Now, many of you would recognize, because it's typically translated present, especially in like Romans 12, present your bodies a living sacrifice. That's this word, paristemi. And also in Romans 6, it says, yield your members unto God. We're supposed to yield this body unto God. We're supposed to peristomy. 
So to present and yield unto the rightful owner, the rightful possessor. It's hard because it translates in the English either present or yield. It's hard to come up with a word that describes both and at the same time. The way I typically describe it at Ellerslie, it's like the semi-truck that is full of goods for a warehouse. And so you're the warehouse. That's, that's the body. It's you. And God says, hey, I have something that needs to come in. It needs to fill that belly. It needs to satisfy you so you're not looking to this world to be satisfied. But I need you to open up your life, open up this body, and let me in. And so the term is paristomy. You need to do that, Eric. And so presenting is like the concept of opening up the doors of your warehouse and saying, God, this is yours. Come in. But then yielding is actually allowing it, when it begins to come in, to come in. The workers are bringing in the big boxes, you know, the, the, the little, uh, what's those little trucks that zoom around and pick up things? Forklift. Forklift is picking up stuff and actually moving it into your life. Whoa, whoa, you need to yield to it. Don't just present your body and then when God actually begins to move in, you're like, whoa, whoa, I didn't know you were going to try and do that. You present and yield. Whatever you desire to do inside this body, you do. That's just Christianity. This isn't some advanced deluxe version of it. That's just what Christianity is. It's God overtaking the belly. It's God transforming it, booting out the belly dude and saying, a new king rules here. So to present and yield unto the rightful owner, the rightful possessor, Jesus Christ. To place oneself at the disposal of another. To offer up, to relinquish, to make available, to give back to the one who rightfully owns it in the first place. Who owns this body? Jesus does. So when he's asking for your body, he's only asking for that which he's already purchased. He already owns it rightfully. And why we dicker with him and go, I don't know about that. We are called squatters. You know what a squatter is? It's someone who unlawfully takes property that is not theirs. We are squatters in our own life, sitting on his throne. And we're claiming this is our body, our belly, and we will do with it what we want to do with it gluttony. We are serving our own interests, our own ends, and the wages of it is death. And God says, I have a purpose for this body. But to find that purpose, you need to come to me. You need to turn unto me and give this body to me. And when we give this body to him, he moves in and he changes the entire complexion of our inner life. Romans 6, every time you see the word yield, that's the word peristomy. Neither yield you, your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin. Do not give this belly to gluttony anymore. Do not yield to that bell ringing and do not turn down your own bed sheets anymore. But yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. Know you not that to whom you yield yourselves, servants to obey, his servants you are to whom you obey. If you yield to the belly dude, guess what? You're a servant to him. He will be your master. And you know who rules the belly dude? Satan. When you serve the belly, you serve the God of the belly, which I will explain to you in just a second, is none other than Satan. Whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness, as you have yielded your members, servants to uncleanness and to iniquity unto iniquity, this is like talking to the prodigal. As you have done that in the past, even so now, yield your members, servants to righteousness unto holiness. Yield this body, the belly being part of it. 
and yield it unto God for him to use it in a way that would please him. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies, that's the same word, peristomy, a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God. Listen to this last line. Which is your reasonable service. It's only reasonable. God says, I need this body. If I don't have it, I can't change it. If I don't have it, I can't redeem it. You give to me what is rightfully mine, and I will take care of it. That's what's called faith. That's the transaction of Christianity. You turn from this tree. You turn from the serpent. You turn from all of his lies, and you believe, and you say, this is where salvation is found. I will not find salvation. I will not find satisfaction in the fruit of that tree. I, even though it looks good to my natural eye, my spiritual eye is esteeming the fruit on this tree, which is Jesus Christ. And I repent of this behavior, and I turn and yield my body, my belly being a part of it, unto the living God, and I say, have your way with it. What, says Paul, know you not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which you have of God, and you are not your own? For you are bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. The last word in that sentence is God's, which means possessive. They belong to God. Your body and your spirit belong to him. He has rightful claim to them. Give him what he is due. So there's a concept in the, in the Bible of upon the belly. Now, can you think of any animal that lives upon its belly? Isn't that interesting? A snake does. And you know that a snake or a serpent didn't originally live upon its belly? However, the curse was that it went upon its belly. It's really fascinating. And the Lord God said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle and above every beast of the field. Upon thy belly shalt thou go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. Dust, that which has decomposed, the waste of this world, earthly things. You see, this is what the serpent got. It's called the curse. You know who else lives under the curse? Those of us that are outside of Jesus Christ. We live under the curse, and upon our belly we do go. Whatsoever goeth upon the belly, them ye shall not eat, for they are an abomination. So even in the law of God, if it goes upon its belly, do not eat it. Why? That which goes upon the belly is an abomination to God. Whoa! Oh, that's an extreme statement for someone who goes upon their belly. That's right, we're just thinking it's talking about animals, but it's giving a foreshadow, an understanding of flesh versus spirit. The flesh cannot please God. It's an abomination to God. When the belly is used improperly, when the God of the belly becomes the God of the human body, and we serve our lower, baser instincts, as a result, we become an abomination to Almighty God. The first man is known as earthy. The first man is of the earth, earthy meaning he's on his belly in the dust. The second man is the Lord from heaven. As is the earthy, such are they also that are earthy. And as is the heavenly, such are they also that are heavenly. And as we have borne the image of the earthy upon our belly eating dust, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot enter the kingdom of God. Neither doth corruption inherit incorruption. We are as our father, the devil, 
eating dust. Now, if you are redeemed by Jesus Christ, this doesn't apply to us. We are redeemed from our belly. But the point that I'm making in this message is I'm putting my finger on this concept of the belly Christian, our justification that we can serve both, that we can serve our belly and serve Jesus Christ simultaneous. Why do you not understand my speech, even because you cannot hear my word? You are of your father, the devil, and the lusts of your father you will do. You see, when we are attracted to this tree, the first tree, the tree in the garden, it has delicacies, tasty goodies. It rings the bell. Our body's like, oh, I would love that. When we serve that, we are of that very one who lives upon his belly and eats dust. He was a murderer from the beginning and abode not in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. And because I tell you the truth, you believe me not. Listen to a Psalm 44. For our soul is bowed down to the dust. Our belly cleaves unto the earth. That sounds like quite a few of us that have lived with the power of sin over our life. We hate it. It's disgusting. And yet we feel that downward pull to things of this earth, base things. Our belly is upon the dirt. Introducing the belly God. Those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you learned, for they are they, so those that are causing divisions in the church of Jesus Christ, it says, for they are they, for they that are such serve not our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly. And by good words and fair speeches deceive the hearts of the simple. And then when it's talking in Philippians 3 about enemies of the cross, it says, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is their shame, who mind earthly things. Meats for the belly, and the belly for meats. But God shall destroy both it and them. Now the body is not for fornication. It's not meant to be spent after lust and sensual pleasure. That's what God's saying. It's not for fornication, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. Your body is not supposed to be spent as a foodie. It is meant to be spent as a Christian, Fully given what he wants with it, that's what he gets. Upon the belly, four things that mark those enslaved to the dust of this earth. They eat dust, they're strangely satisfied with worldly rot. That which is passing away, that which is not eternal, they have a strange fixation and fascination about it. They mind earthly things. They make their appetite their God and they serve their sexual cravings. Whatever they want, they go after if they can afford it, they feel that they have an entitlement to it. If they can have access to it, well, why shouldn't they take it? Everyone else around them is taking it. Everyone else around us is behaving this way. Even Christians are behaving this way. Why should I feel any guilt about that? Because the Bible strictly declares you have been set free from your belly. Why in the world are you returning to the flesh? Why in the world are you returning to your belly when you've been set upright to live as a man or a woman of God and to walk on two feet? The significance of the belly. The belly in Scripture would be classified as the innermost place. It would be the belly, but it's also the womb. It's an interesting word. It's the word gaster, but it's the innermost place. So gaster, the belly, the womb, the stomach, 
The gormandizer, which is also just the stomach. We look at it as an actual person, is a gormandizer, which means they're all stomach. The place of self-entitlement and thus death and decay. That appetite and that belly is our great place of danger. We are proven in our belly. What is in our belly? Is it all of us or is it Jesus Christ? You know that our belly is supposed to be filled with Jesus Christ? It's supposed to have living waters in it. When Jesus Christ was pierced on the cross, remember what came out of him? Living waters. Blood and water. Blood is life and water is water. Living water flowed out of his side. And Jesus says, whoever believes on me out of their, out of their bellies will flow rivers of living water. We are supposed to have our womb or our gaster filled with Jesus One of themselves, even a prophet of their own, said the Cretans are always liars, evil beasts. They're called slow bellies, which means lazy gluttons. Isn't that an interesting? That's that's a bad thing, by the way. That's not supposed to be a positive. They're called foodies. The place of self-relinquishment and thus the life of Jesus Christ. So the belly is either the place of self-entitlement or self-relinquishment. God, I give you my belly. I give you my womb. You know what? Just go back 2,000 years to Nazareth. There's an angel that visits a little girl named Mary. What does he ask for? He asks for her womb. And what does she say? No way. She yields her womb unto who? Jesus And what comes forth out of her life? Jesus. When you are filled with Jesus and you yield, you paristomy, your inner life to Jesus, what comes out of you? It's called the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Out of you comes Jesus. And Mary said, Behold the handmaid of the Lord, be it unto me according to thy word. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise, when as his mother Mary was espoused to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Ghost. It's an interesting thought to think of Jesus actually living inside of us, but this is a picture of it. Have you been found with child by the Holy Spirit? You see, the Holy Spirit will actually grow up the life of Jesus in your womb. Jesus will live inside of you. This is actually how Christianity works. You see, that belly can be filled with you, or it can be filled with him. If it's filled with you, you're known as a glutton. You're all about you. Self-entitlement is your game. But if Jesus is there, you live as he would live, and his entire life was self-relinquishment. Why do you think he went to the cross? It didn't make him feel good. The cross is not the path of a glutton. It's the path of Jesus. And when Jesus lives inside of you, he leads you to the cross where you're willing to lay down your life, your entitlements, your privileged position in this earth. And every single one of you in here, just the fact that you're in America right now, you are one of the wealthiest people in earth's history. Earth's history. You have entitlements. You've been given so much. What are you going to do with it? Lay it all down at his feet and say, you take this life, this amazingly entitled life, you take it. You use it whatever way you see fit. Paristomy. 
Now, this is the same definition I gave before, but there was one little definition out of Perusomy that I left out. And it's this final one down here. It's three lines up. I made it bold. It means to set at hand. You see, Jesus yielded his life unto the Father. And where was he set? He was set at the right hand. Mary gave her womb unto God. And what was she called? She was called the handmaid of the Lord. The handmaid is one who is at the right hand of her groom. To set at hand, to be the bride, the handmaid, the bondservant, the priest. And Mary said, behold the handmaid of the Lord. She peristomade. She said, behold the one who peristomades. I yield and I present my body. Be it unto my womb, according to thy word. Are we willing to follow Mary when that angel comes to us or maybe that sermon comes to us or the clear message of the gospel comes to us and says, I need that womb. I need that belly. Oh, God, what are you going to do with it? You know that Mary suffered great sorrow giving her womb over to God? But she carried the life of God Almighty. And she bore the life of God Almighty in this world. She brought glory to God in this world. She was the most privileged of women. Are we willing to be as Mary, the privileged? Though it may cost us our reputation to carry Jesus in our womb, though we might not fit in well with the foodies, are we willing to be politically incorrect and instead of being a foodie, be a Christian? This innermost place is known as the belly of the womb, It's either the place of self-appetite or the home of Jesus Christ. He that believes on me, as the scripture has said, out of his belly or out of his gaster or out of his innermost shall flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the spirit whom those believing in him would receive for the Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Now, there isn't an actual physical body that moves in. In Mary, there literally was a physical body known as Jesus Christ, the physical person. We have the spirit of Jesus that fills us, and we are known as Christians. That is how a Christian is known. We are filled with the life of Jesus, and then out of us comes the life of Jesus. So when anyone sees us, they see something known as love. But you can't produce this love. Only he can produce it, and he produces it by entering into your life and living, taking this hand and making it his hand, taking these eyes and making it his eyes, taking this mouth and making it his mouth, taking this heart and making it beat with his burdens, taking these feet and causing them to walk in the direction that only he would walk, and taking this womb and in it forming a man or a woman of God, the life of Jesus Christ in us, and out of our belly, out of our life, will flow rivers of living water that will bring life to the world around us, not death. Foodies of a different sort, dedicating our bellies to Jesus Christ. The righteous eats to the satisfying of his soul. Why? Because he's eating the food from the cross. He's eating Jesus Christ, and it satisfies. You know the only thing that will ever satisfy this belly is Jesus Christ? The only thing. You know, he invented it. He knows how it works, and he says, I I have a secret for you, all you foodies out there. You see, you keep eating and you're never satisfied. And you're addicted to your seeking food out of dust. But I have something that will satisfy you forever. But the belly of the wicked shall want. Therefore, take no thought 
You know what a foodie specializes in? We'll, we'll talk about the, uh, what do I call them? The belly-driven foodies. The belly-driven foodies are the foodies that we are understanding in this world today. You know that they take a lot of thought about food. You know what Jesus himself says? Therefore, take no thought, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink? Did I just read that correctly? That doesn't go over very good in the American culture, doesn't it? Take no thought. You are not supposed to be a foodie in that sense. You're not supposed to be fixated with food. You're not supposed to be all about your belly. For after all these things do the Gentiles, which I will define as the belly-driven foodies, seek. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. That's what you are. You're a Christian. And that's what a Christian is focused on. His disciples urged him, saying, Rabbi, eat. So his disciples are talking to Jesus. This is at that woman at the well scene, just after the woman has gone off, all excited. But he said to them, so his disciples are urging him to eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat of which you, you belly-driven foodies, do not know. Do you have food that the foodies of this earth don't understand? Do you have a different sort of food? You see, Jesus had a food, which is a very fascinating concept to me. Food satisfies. Food gives energy. Food gives strength. Food makes the body work. And without food, you can't really function, can you? Jesus still needed food. Isn't that fascinating? He was eating, but he wasn't eating the food of this earth. It's typically called a fast in Scripture, where you literally turn from this food of this earth, not because the food of this earth is bad, but as a declaration spiritually that your belly is given wholly and fully to the living God. I have food to eat of which you, you belly-driven foodies, do not know. Therefore the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him anything to eat? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. What an interesting sort of food that is. Could that actually work? Could that actually sustain us? Most of us would immediately say, well, no, he's not really saying that it's food. Yes, he is. You know what I decided to experiment once? I had such a bad experience with my fasting uh, in this whole time when I was at the missionary school. I couldn't fast anymore. I mean, it was just absolutely scary to me because I lost 25 pounds, and if you look at me, I don't have 25 pounds to lose. By the way, I could never gain back that 25 pounds. I remember going to a nutritionist and saying, I don't know what happened, but way back in the day, I fasted a whole bunch. I didn't eat, and I now look like this. Could you help me get some meat back on my bones? She couldn't figure it out either. I just lost that 25 pounds, and I still can't put it back on. So I've been afraid of fasting. For all these years of my life, and so this is still quite a few years ago, I had a certain thing laid before me by God, and it was a fast. And it was a very, very significant fast, which was very, very difficult for me. And it wasn't an easy one. It wasn't just the afternoon, I'll skip lunch type of a fast. It was a very, very difficult challenge for me. And I remember God saying, do you think I have grace for you or not? Are you willing, Eric, to have food that others know not of? I'd like to explain that to you. And so I began this fast, and every time, because I don't handle fasts well. You know, other people, I've heard them say things like, oh, I just feel so good when I fast. Yeah, I don't. Uh, and so I get lightheaded, and I can hardly function, and, and I have a tendency to immediately start thinking about my belly. 
And so in this situation, I decided to ask God, every time I felt a twinge of weakness, to ask for the food that others know not of, the heavenly food. I want more of that, God. My belly's open. Got plenty of room to stick it. And I decided to actually test this exact point. You know what I discovered? It wasn't physical food, but there was sustenance. It's called grace. I had something that others knew not of. I got so excited. I had this entire fast where I was strong. I was focused. I was heavenly minded the entire time. I wasn't studying cookbooks. This works. But it was because I had a food. You see, I was a foodie of a different sort. I still had to eat. But I gave up the food of this earth to gain a heavenly food and to find a sustenance from it. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. You see, this isn't what a foodie does. A foodie hungers and thirsts after good delicacies and good alcohol. A Christian hungers and thirsts after righteousness. How do you want to be satisfied? This is the only way to do it. For they shall be satisfied. That's Jesus' promise. That's a quote from Jesus Christ right there. The command for foodies everywhere. Whether, therefore, you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. You see, a lot of us separate out our life. We have our Christian life here, and then we have our food central life over here. We just think that they can coexist somehow. However, God makes it very clear in his word. Whether you're eating or whether you're drinking or whatsoever you are doing, you do everything God's way. You do everything the way God intended you to do it. So eating and drinking needs to change. You need to begin to eat and drink for the glory of God in a way that actually pleases him. That doesn't mean spitting out your food and saying, yuck. It means giving God glory in everything you're doing, making sure that he is the center of every part of your day. Jesus must be our portion. In scripture, a portion is a serving. It's like your plate full of food. And most of us, it sounds over-spiritualized to say that Jesus is our portion. It's like, thanks a lot. I get Jesus, you get a really nice looking plate of food. God will feed you. You will have physical nourishment in this life, and there's nothing wrong with it, and I want you to enjoy your food. What I don't want you to do is be fixated on it. It's the same principle of money. I don't want you to be impoverished as if that's more spiritual, but what I don't want is for money to control you. I want money to be under the control of the Spirit of God in your life, where at any point in time, you can give it up. At any point in time, you can give it away. I want the same thing with, with food in each of our lives. Enjoy it when you have it, but don't let it control you. Food must be under the control of the Spirit of God in your life. And if he asks you to give it up at any point in time, you can say, absolutely. You know, the ultimate fast isn't just not eating. It's taking the food that you do have and serving others with it. That's the ultimate type of fast. That's what it even says in Isaiah 58. That's the true fast. You see, it's not going without that is spiritual. It's taking that which you have been given and giving it that is spiritual. God doesn't just want you without, as if that is the most spiritual thing. He wants you to be a flow-through channel for his strength, for his grace, and for his blessing. You have been given food. Now, what you do with it is of the utmost importance. 
If you are in this culture, you are wealthy, but what you do with that wealth is of the utmost importance. If you use it upon your belly and your appetite, you die. But if you use it for God's pleasure, to serve and to to lend and to make others strong, then that pleases God. Jesus must be our plate of food. Jesus must be our portion. The declaration of heaven-minded foodies everywhere. O Lord, you are the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You are the strength of my heart and my portion forever. You are my portion, O Lord. I cried out to you, O Lord. I said, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. You are the portion of Jacob. That's what it says in Scripture. That's the cry of the heaven-minded foodies everywhere. You see, we need food to live. But our food is Jesus Christ, first and foremost. And so we turn unto that cross and we say, you are my sustenance. You are my life. You are my fixation. If I'm going to be a foodie, if it's necessary that I'm a foodie on this earth, I'm going to be a heaven-minded foodie. I'm not going to serve my lower, baser cravings, the belly and below. That's not what I serve. I serve the head, Jesus Christ. I will stand upright on two feet and live nobly for my king, demonstrating how Jesus Christ lived and demonstrating how God intended his creation to live with nobility and purpose, not on my belly eating dust. We do not serve our cravings. We serve him. And that's a Christian. Jesus himself says, I am the food for the foodie. I am the bread of life. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my body, which I shall give for the life of the world. For my body is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He says, hey, all you foodies, I am the food that satisfies. I am the food you should be focused on. All day long, you should be thinking about me. All day long, you should be considering how you can give me to others around you. You know, that's what a woman is doing when she's preparing a great meal for her family that night. Whether it's setting the table, whether it's putting food in the crock pot, I don't care what it is. What's she doing? She's giving. And that's the healthy version of it. When we become consumed with our sensual delights and all we're thinking about is how we can please our own belly, something is wrong. But Jesus Christ has come and died upon a cross. He has risen from the dead and ascended to the right hand of the Father and he's given us grace by which we can be saved. He is calling to us prodigals, those of us that are on our belly, in with the pigs. And he's saying, come home. Come home. Get off your belly and get back up onto your feet and come home. He has killed the lamb that we might be clothed with the best of clothing, the robe of righteousness, and we may enter into his house and feast with him forever. There's nothing wrong with eating. We just need to eat to the glory of God. Thank you so much for listening to this message by Pastor Eric Ludy, pastor at the Church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. 
Please, feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without express written permission. If you have any questions, comments, or just need more information about Ellerslie, please visit our website at www.ellerslie.com. Again, that website is www.ellerslie.com. For Ellerslie Mission Society, this is Ben Zorns, cheering you on as Christ cultivates His set-apart life within you.